We're working our way through the book of First Timothy, and last week we got to verse 9 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 9, and that verse, don't turn there, <laughs> that verse pushed us into a planned tangent. Uh, that verse, uh, that paragraph actually in First Timothy chapter 2 speaks in, um, in very profound ways about our manhood and womanhood, depending on which way we've been created as men and women. And we decided to back up and take the focus out a little bit and look at that whole issue in the scriptures. And we agreed last week that our culture is confused about this issue. And last week, we looked at chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis. Now, that's where I'd like you to turn. I'm going to break one of my own rules I have for myself. I never, I never review last week's sermon in a sermon this week. Did you never notice that? But I'm going to do that just a tad this morning because uh, for our guests that are here or if you missed last week, it's, it's crucial that we see the link between what we saw last week and what we're going to see this week. Last week we looked just in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which is very significant because that's the piece that occurs before sin came into the picture. Today we're going to look at sin, but before sin, it's important for us to understand the picture that God had painted for us. We saw there that that we were created by God, not an accident of evolution, but a decision of God. And the scripture in verse chapter 1, verse 27 there in this broad statement about God creating us, he, he, he drew our attention to two points of information only. It says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And so God has said, I've created human beings and they're in my image and I've made them two different things. Man and woman. So our image bearing has been mentioned there by God. And the fact that we are, we are different. Both bear the image of God, but we are made man and woman. A very crucial uh, part of our creation and our being and our very, our very selves. Then we saw there in chapter 1 that God jointly or gave to man jointly. In other words, men and women. A twofold commission. God commissioned us. I'm calling it the first commission to rule over the earth and to fill the earth. That was his plan for putting us on this earth was that together, man and woman together, we would have dominion over the earth. Not in a negative sense. There's nothing negative about that. But we're to we're to manage this globe for God. We're to live and and run the earth for God and we're to fill it. Adam and Eve weren't supposed to do it by themselves. They were supposed to have babies. We we're supposed to, mankind then, would, would run this globe for God. We see also in that, that account that, and we see that it was significant. It wasn't just an incidental uh, piece of information that didn't mean anything. But we saw that the man was created first. And the woman was created as a suitable helper for him and implied there and then stated more explicitly in other places is the fact then that the man had has a leadership role in the part of the uh, 
the men and women being together, especially in marriage then, and then later in the church, the man bears the role of leadership, the primary. He's to take the primary initiative in leading things forward in a God-glorifying direction. And the woman has this, this role of being a willing support to the leadership that the man has been given by God. We also saw in chapter 1 and 2 that there was no hint whatsoever of any jealousy or competition or anything negative about this, this design of God. They were given, men, man and woman were given this awesome planet to begin managing for God's glory. And they were to do so as a team. And yet within the team, there was a, there was a little bit of a distinction in their roles. And if we do not import any of our own negative, perhaps the negative experiences that we've had in our lives concerning men, roles of men and women and misuse of power or all of that, if we don't take anything from our own experience that has made uh, the man's leadership and the woman's support seem negative, if we don't take any of that, those negative perceptions of ourselves and put it into Genesis 1 and 2, we find that it's not there. That the picture that God has, there isn't anything negative in it. It's a marvelous picture, one that each of us wants. But unfortunately, that's not where we live. Because the story didn't end in Genesis chapter 2, did it? It, Chapter 3 came. And you and I live in chapter 3 and following. Because chapter 3 is where sin came into the picture. And I want to read for you uh, part of chapter 3. And if if you've got your Bible open, uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. uh, So you'll find it easily. Chapter 3. And we'll begin at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any, any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, and we know from later in the story that this is Satan working through the serpent. It says, He said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings they heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden in the cool of the day And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself 
And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now then he, God begins to pronounce the, the judgment on the different parties. I'm going to skip uh, down to verse 16. I'll skip the part about what he said to Satan. And we get to verse 16. He says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I want to make this morning four observations that will help us understand more fully the picture of biblical manhood and womanhood in light of the fact that sin is now a reality. We saw the picture before sin last week, but now we live here. We live now with the results of chapter 3. But there's some very uh, important observations I think we need to make from this, this account. The first one is this that our perception of life is distorted by sin. Sin actually distorts how we perceive life. Look again at verses 1 to 3. It's very, very interesting. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. As Eve begins... To respond to Satan's temptation and his suggestions that God really doesn't have your best in mind for you. As she begins to to be drawn into this trap, her perception is distorted. I want you to see how. You see in verse 2, after Satan in verse 1 had said, Did God say you, you can't eat from any of the trees? As she says from the, in verse 2, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. There's a slight little change here. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 16, look how God said it. It says, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. And then he goes on to say, except there's one. So God is saying, you can have, you have all of this and you can eat freely. But now as As um, Eve begins to respond to Satan's suggestion, she's dropped the word freely out. We can eat this stuff instead of this free and great abundance. 
And then notice what else she says in verse 3. She says, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. God didn't say that. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. God just said you can't eat it. Now she's adding to it. She's, she's going along now. Satan's pulling her along. And she's, she's doubting God's goodness. And then uh, you see what's happening is Satan is getting her to, um, to believe that God's plan for you isn't as good as your plan for you. you. Your plan for you is better than God's plan for you. She's doubting his goodness, his provision, as well as beginning then as Satan begins to talk about, if you eat of this, you'll be like him. She wants to take his place. But there's then one more very interesting observation in verse 3. She says, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden. Is it really in the middle? Look at chapter 2, verse 9. It's not in the middle. There's another tree in the middle. See in verse chapter 2, verse 9. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst or middle. It's the same Hebrew word. The middle of the garden. It's the tree of life that's in the middle of the garden. And then it says, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't know where it was. But the tree of life is in the middle. But... Eve has been told and Adam has been told, don't eat of the tree of good and evil. Now Satan is tempting her saying, what? You can't eat of that? And she says, yeah, I can't eat of the tree, the tree that's in the middle. Now what's forbidden her becomes the middle, becomes the center of it all. In her mind, sin is distorting her very perception of life. Man, in temptation, that which was forbidden now becomes the center of her perception. You know, those of you who know me know that last year was a rough year uh, health-wise. And at one point, I was diagnosed where I can't eat gluten. So I can't eat anything with gluten. So I can't eat wheat, barley, rye. And there's some confusion over oats. So I stay clear of oats, too. So uh, I can't eat anything with gluten in it. And all my bad days, when I'm feeling sorry for myself, I look at somebody eating a sandwich and say, man, I wish I could eat a sandwich. I can't eat bread. You know, you can't eat bread. So, And somebody eats a cookie and say, man, I can't eat a cookie. Rats. You know, I can't eat a piece of cake. You know, and, I, and on my bad days, then I repent and get better. But, but um, the th- I can eat... I can eat 98% of the food out there. But I feel sorry for myself sometimes because I can't eat that piece of bread. You see, (laughs) it's the thing I can't eat becomes the center of what I want. Right? Then I try to repent and get cleared up and go eat all the good stuff that I can eat anyway. But that's what's happening here. The one tree that she can't eat of, now becomes the center of everything. You know, with the issue of manhood and womanhood, 
and the God-given roles that God has designed, the role of leadership for the man, the role of support for the woman. Sin makes the supporting role on the team, in other words, the role of the woman, seem demeaning or lacking or undignified. And it's, it's, a, it's sin that's, that's warping our perceptions of, of God's design of it in the beginning. The roles and the uniqueness of our sexual differences is of primary significance in our lives. It's one of the few things, as I said already, that's mentioned and highlighted in Genesis 1 and 2. And our perception of this design of God for us is distorted now by sin. And we find ourselves sometimes fighting against it as if it was something bad. But it's not bad at all. Not the actual plan. There's many misuses of it all through history. We've seen that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what the Bible is talking about. We have to be, be aware as we come to this whole issue that, that our perception of life is distorted by sin. And so we need to get before God and say, Lord, Lord, it's really hard for me to do this. I, it's hard for me to think about these issues as a blank slate. I guess I really can't. But Lord, help me. Help me to see what it is you want. And then help me to move forward and be that. Second, second observation I want to make here. And that is this. Our God-given role as a man and a woman was a key component in Adam and Eve's fall into sin. This is very, very significant, and I hope I can keep you with me in this. But I'm saying that our, the, the design of God for the man and the woman in terms of their distinction of roles between the two of them, the way they're to relate to each other, that was the context in which sin came. It was a key component in Adam and Eve's fall into sin. What do I mean? Let's look at this again. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Notice that Satan speaks to the woman. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman. He approached the woman. He approaches Eve. And in so doing, he subverts the order that God had instituted. I believe that Adam was there. Look at verse 6. At the end of verse 6, it says, And she gave also to her husband with her. Adam was there the whole time. So here's Adam, and I'll do it this way. Here's Adam and Eve. Adam has been given the role as the, the primary initiator, the leader. And as we'll see later, there's, there's a lot of significance there. And the woman is given to him as a helper suitable for him. And Satan comes and talks to the, to the woman. He's deliberately subverting the order that God has instituted. <clears throat> and then, notice in verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, Eve takes the lead in responding to the intruder. Adam was there when Eve came and spoke, when, when Satan came and spoke to Eve, Adam could have spoken up. And therein is another problem. Adam is passive. Adam does not intervene 
and take his place as leader and respond to the intruder, he's passive and the woman steps up and she begins to to respond to the intruder. It's all wrong. It's wrong right there. It's wrong. Right there. God's order of things, Satan very craftily has come in and subverted it. And it's in the context of a subverted and and turned upside down role reversal between man and woman that sin occurs. And then it's interesting. It does not say in this passage that it doesn't say she ate and then he ate. It doesn't say that. What's it say? Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good and etc., etc., she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. She's taking the lead, and he's letting her. The essence of their sin is rebellion. It's a doubting of the goodness and the kind intent of God. It's a lack of trust, and there's even in it, in that rebellion, there's a desire to be like God. That's the essence of the sin. But a key component in it all is the abandonment of their God-given roles as man and woman. Ray Ortland Jr. says, says it this way. He says, what actually happened is full of meaning. Eve usurped Adam's headship and led the way into sin. And Adam, who it seems had stood by passively, allowing the deception to progress without decisive intervention, Adam, for his part, abandoned his post as head. Eve was deceived. Adam forsook his responsibility. Both were wrong and together they pulled the human race down into sin and death. It's good, it's important for you to understand and for me to understand that there was a deadly role reversal that was at the heart of our parents' first sin. It's very important. Now, third observation. Third observation. Our pain, our pain in, in the relationship between men and women is a primary result of sin. <clears throat> In chapter 3, look, look up now at verse 11. God comes. God now comes on the scene. And, and um, don't be confused by these questions. God wasn't asking these questions because he didn't know the answer. <laughs> Every parent knows that, right? What parent in here has ever has never asked their kid a question that you already know the answer to, right? You're doing it for their sake. They have to say it and realize it. So God is calling them to account. And I want to make some observations here. But, but first of all, look at verse 11. It says, who told you that you were naked? And then listen to this question. He's talking to Adam. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me. Let's stop right there. And we laugh, but how terrible. Actually, you could take this down and just just take the first two words he said. God comes to Adam and says, hey, have you done what you weren't supposed to do? And his first two words, the woman And you see what's happening here. 
You see what's happening here? Conflict, blame, discord, disunity, tension. All of that immediately is there between man and woman. Some of the first human words uttered, recorded after sin. Okay, this is only the second sentence that Adam has spoken that's recorded after sin came into the world. Starts with the words, the woman. Do you remember last week? Do you remember the first recorded words of a human being? Remember what it was? It was the poetry of a man about his woman. And now where are we? Sin comes. And some of the first words are, that woman. And the beauty of it is now, is now thrown into discord and pain. This is a terrible consequence of sin. And it's immediately experienced in the relationship between man and woman. And then we come to the official pronouncement of God, by God, of the curse or of the, of the punishment. He speaks to the woman in verse 16. <clears throat> I'm going to look, I'm going to skip the part about Satan because uh, we'll touch on a piece of it. But I'm going to skip that for today. We don't have time to look at that. But I'm going to look at the woman and the man. Look at what God said to the woman in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. The woman is now going to suffer in her relationship with her children. Having children is not the curse. Remember, God said already in chapter 1 and 2, fill the earth, multiply and and fill it. Having children is God's design. That's good. It's what we're to do. But having pain in it is now the curse. And then look as the verse goes on. It says, in pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Not only will she now suffer in her relationship with her children, she's going to suffer in her relationship with her husband. That's an interesting, excuse me, it's an interesting phrase there. Yet your desire will be for your husband. There's been a lot of ink spilt over what exactly does that mean? I'm going to tell you what I think it means. I think that the way it's written and the fact that that it is almost exactly paralleled just one chapter later, it gives us a clue at what this means. Look at chapter four, verse seven. This is the story. Now there's Cain and Abel. Cain is upset with his brother. God can see what's coming. If you look at verse six, the Lord says to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? And then look at verse 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. That same, that phrase there, its desire, sin's desire is for you, Cain. That's the same phrase, the same 
uh, grammar, the same words that's used in chapter 3, verse 16, where it's saying to the, God is saying to the woman, your desire will be for your husband. It's a desire to control. Sin wants to control you, Cain, but you've got to master it. Well, we know that Cain didn't, he didn't work. It didn't work. He didn't master it and he murdered his brother. Part of the curse, see, the the result of sin is that in the man and woman relationship, she's going to desire to control the man. She's going to desire to control it, to control him. Don't know if you've ever seen that before. It's around. But look at the second part of this verse. It's very interesting. It says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, what does that mean? He will rule over you. Well, there's kind of two alternatives. Some think that that phrase means that, but you're going to desire, Eve, you're going to, you're going to want to rule. You're going to want to continue this role reversal. You're going to want to be in charge, but the original plan will not be rescinded. He's going to still rule over you. That's one idea. Another idea is that it's not saying it in a good way. You see, that would mean that his ruling over her is is referred to as a good thing. It's part of God's original plan. It's not a negative thing. But the other way of understanding that phrase, you're going to desire him. You're going to want to control him, but he'll rule over you. In a negative sense, it might mean that in spite of you trying to rule him, one way or the other, he's going to rule you. It's not going to work. There's going to be this conflict. And he's going to rule over you either by his force, his strength. In general, you understand the men are stronger physically in general. And so the man is just going to force his way. He's just going to have dominion over you. Or he's going to flip the switch and go passive. And he'll just let you just do whatever you want, but you're not really going to rule him. He's going to passively win or he's going to dominate. And all that, what we see is that here is that the leadership of the man, that leadership role is given before the fall into sin. That's not part of sin. The role of the man as the leader is not part of sin, but the competition for the leadership now comes after sin. And the pain in the relationship between man and woman, that comes because of sin. Is that clear? All right. Hang with me here. And let's look at what God says to the man. Look at verse 17. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. He's going to have pain in his work. The work itself is not sin. Not because of sin. Some people say that work came because of falling into sin. No, no, no. Remember, God gave us work. Amen? God gave us work. He put us on earth and said, we're to work and manage this earth. And all that that means, uh, which will be for another day. But all that that, that's all work. The work 
is not the curse. The pain in the work is the curse. Having children is not the curse. The pain in having the children is the curse. And so we see that 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 is there. And then you remember, of course, his commission. He was commissioned. Man was commissioned to rule over the earth. But there's this this ironic defeat by the earth that comes now because of sin. Look at the second half of verse 19. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's a sad, ultimate defeat by the earth. One commentator says, After a lifetime of survival by the sweat of his brow, the ground from which he was first taken will swallow him up in death. And so here is sin that's come in and it's warped now. It's warped everything. Our work has pain in it. Our relationships have pain in it. And this crucial relationship between man and woman. Now that our perceptions are distorted and there's a role reversal competition going on all the time. And that's all because of sin. And I want to make a few observations here, too, about from the rationale for God's punishment. I want to just I want you to see this because no one else is saying this in our culture. And so while I've got the chance, I want to I want to just reinforce what we're saying here. Look at verse nine again. Chapter three, verse nine. Adam and Eve have both sinned. Who does God go to? To call him to account, he goes to the man. They heard the sound, uh, verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He didn't say, where are you, Eve? He didn't say, where are you, Adam and Eve? He's calling the man to account. This says something about the way God has designed our roles. Adam is the final responsible member of the partnership, not Eve. His sin was the pivotal factor in the fall, not Eve's. And we said already in verse 17, you you see there in verse 17, he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and ate, it wasn't just that you ate, but you are in charge. You're the head of this relationship. You abrogated that and then you sinned. It's interesting in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 in the New Testament. It says this, therefore, just as sin entered, excuse me, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Isn't it interesting that Adam and Eve both sinned, but when the New Testament speaks then of why is it, how is it that sin gets passed down to all of us? It's Adam's fault. Because because he's the one that God placed as the head of the race. He's the one that stands as our judicial representative. He's the head, not, not Eve. He holds a different role than Eve in relation to the rest of the human race. And um, that role is not a result of sin, but it existed before sin. So now, though, we come back to the fact that our relationship 
Man and woman is severely damaged by sin. Now, before we go on and to finish, I just want to say this. We must not fear the biblical picture of the relationships between men and women the way they are. Amen? We've got to look, and I said this last week, in, in our study now of this issue of biblical manhood and womanhood, I don't want to go back. Some people are afraid. When we, when we talk about this kind of thing, they're afraid. Wait, you want to go back to the 1950s? I don't want to go back to the 1950s. I don't think we had it right in the 1950s. If we're going to go back at all, I just want to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. That's how far back. But other than that, I want to go forward. Amen? I want to go forward. I don't think any generation's ever got it right yet. So let's, let's be the one. <laughs> let's make it right. But let me tell you that you know them. You've bumped into them. And if you haven't, then, uh, then I'm sorry for you. But, but you've met couples that have got it right. You've met men and women that have lived together as man and wife. And there's a sweetness to it and a strength in it. And a purpose of, there's a vitality and yet a, an iron, iron unbending strength in it all. That's not negative, it's positive. You've bumped into couples like that. God has had his people down through the ages that have gotten it right. Even though the culture hasn't gotten it right. So I want to go back, sure. I want to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. And since Genesis 3 exists, I guess that's going to be hard to do. So let's go forward. And let's, let's see God work in our lives what it is he desires. And let's not let the present distortions of sin keep us from seeking the best. Now, I want to make a last observation. Number four. What have we said so far? Let me review. Our perception, number one, our perception of life is distorted by sin. Number two, our God-given role as a man and a woman was a key component in Adam and Eve's fall into sin. Number three, our pain in the relationship between men and women is a primary result of sin. But number four, there is one way and only one way out of this predicament. There's one way and it's hinted at right here in our text in Genesis chapter three. And I skipped it. It was in his words to Satan. Look at, look at verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, meaning her seed, will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. I spoke about this last year and one Sunday. This is the first prophecy about the coming Messiah. Right here where sin had occurred, even in the middle of the pronouncement of judgment, God in his grace is saying, but there's going to be a way out of this. There's going to be a way for this to be reversed. There's going to be a way that, that, that the harmony can, can exist and the filling of the earth and the ruling of the earth can take place. There's one that's coming who's going to be the woman's seed. There's going to be a descendant of Eve. And that descendant of Eve is going to be bruised on the heel by Satan, but he's going to bruise Satan's head. Another way of translating that word bruise is crush. His heel, this one who's coming, his heel will be crushed, but he's going to crush Satan's head. Amen? 
And that one is Jesus Christ. If we had the time, we don't have the time. We could go from Genesis all the way through into the New Testament and show you that that prophecy, which began this broad, like there's just going to be one. It does, we don't know any more about that. The prophecies continue to narrow it down until it's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is that one. And in him, there's the grace of God that turns this around. I read a little while ago from Romans 5. Let me read a little bit more, beginning at verse 19. It says, For as through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, that's us, even so through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through, G- through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace would reign. Amen? Grace comes through Jesus Christ to undo what our first forefather did, <clears throat> what Adam did, and to defeat Satan, who tempted them into it. The grace of God can turn things around. The grace of God means receiving forgiveness of our sins from God through Jesus Christ, not because you deserve it. That's what the grace of God is. Amen? Where was Christ's heel crushed? It was on the cross. So on the cross, Jesus suffers... And in his suffering, he's taking the punishment that you deserve and I deserve for our sin. He is paying the penalty. Amen? And so he takes it away. Now, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have forgiveness precisely because you don't deserve it. You have forgiveness because Jesus deserved it for you. Amen? This is crucial, my friend. Grace means you don't deserve it. And so the grace of God reigning in your life means that you have forgiveness of your sins. And you don't deserve it, but Christ got it for you. Amen. But the grace of God doesn't stop there. The grace of God means that you receive inner strength from God through Jesus Christ. And not because you deserve it. You see, now I'm forgiven, but now I need to live. And hey, I happen to be married. And I have this woman. We're trying to live together the way God wants us to live. And that takes work. And I'm a sinner and I don't always want to do the right thing or say the right thing or think the right thing. How do I overcome this? The grace, the grace of God which you do not deserve. Some of us, some of us think, I, some of us know, we know, we know that I can't get forgiveness. I can't earn it. So I receive it as a gift from Christ. We got that part. But then we think that the strength that I receive from God to live the way I ought, that ongoing grace of God in my life, somehow I deserve that. I have to work to get that. I have to earn that grace. Do you know what I mean? And we fall into this trap of thinking that somehow I'm going to earn the strength that I need every day 
to live as I ought. That's grace too. Amen? I go to God based on my forgiveness and I receive from him the strength through Jesus Christ to treat my wife right, to live right, to work right, to relate to people right, to resist temptation and to live for God. It's grace, my friend. It's grace. You don't deserve any of it. And God gives you all of it through Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? You can have that. Are you receiving grace? Do you want that grace or are you still rebelling? Women, are you still viewing life through the distorted lens that you've inherited from Eve? Thinking that that leadership role in the relationships, you got to get it. And if you get it, that will be good for you. And that goodness for you is better than the goodness God has designed for you. Men, are you still being passive and giving up your leadership role like Adam taught you to? Standing by while your wife, who for many of us, our wives are the more spiritual ones, the more attuned ones to spiritual things. And we stand by and let them lead just like our dad taught us to. My friends, we need to receive grace. From God through Jesus Christ. Amen? All of us do. We need, to, we need to let him enable us to see clearly and brush the distortions aside. And then to step up and live the way we're supposed to live. And when we do that, when we do that, we will experience blessing that we never could have attained by trying to do it our own way. That never works. Adam and Eve taught us that. Now, some of you are thinking, but I'm not married. That's okay. I'm going to talk next time about singleness because this is a, it's a crucial issue too, but I can't talk about everything at once. So we're, we're going to get there. But, but um, in our lives, my friends, there is one way and only one way out of the predicament that our first parents got us into. And that is the grace of God. Grace from God through Jesus Christ. And he can do it. Do you want it? I want it. Amen. Let's stand together and and close our service. Our Lord, we thank and praise you for, for your love and your goodness to us. And Father, we confess that we, we, oh Lord, need your grace. We need your grace to clear our heads so that we, we can see things the way you see them. And we need your grace, O Lord, to find forgiveness of our sins. And then we need your grace, O God, to be the people that we ought to be, to go ahead and live as close to Genesis 1 and 2 as we can get. And you'll be glorified and we'll be blessed. Lord, we want it. Do it in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless. Lord bless.